I want to welcome you into the Sunday preaching podcast of the Point Church located in beautiful Perdido Key, Florida. I'm Tim Coleman, the senior pastor, and we believe strongly in the expositional preaching of God's Word that builds our faith and grows us up in Christ. I'm glad you're either downloading the sermon or listening live to our service, and I pray that this message is a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join me as we get to the point. So the Lottie Moon Christmas offering is for international missions, and the Annie Armstrong Easter offering is for missions in North America, for church planning and uh, different ministries that we have. Uh, The North American Mission Board now is uh, mobilized in the state of Alabama. I'm sure you saw a lot of the uh, tornado damage over the last few days, and they're there mobilized, doing a lot of work. And I think it's important for us to be reminded that we're a part of that as we give. And so you pray about what the Lord would have you to give over these days uh, toward the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Uh, Before I get into the message, I I have a praise uh, John mentioned it. We've we've kind of over the last couple of weeks been announcing the Easter sunrise service, with not really admitting that it was uh, you know our attitude was a hope so. Uh, but on Friday afternoon, about five thirty, uh, in my email, I got the permit uh, for us to have our sunrise service out on Johnson's Beach. It's been quite a journey, and uh, but we do have that. And so next uh, Sunday morning at six thirty, we'll be gathering out there. Uh, We will be doing it a little bit different this year based off of their uh, recommendations. Uh, We'll be setting up under the pavilion with our uh, microphones and and music and so forth, our instruments, and so everyone will actually be out on the beach, okay, on the other side of the pavilions. We won't be in the parking lot as we normally are. Uh, You need to bring a chair, okay, or you can stand up. Uh, We're not going to carry... A lot of the stuff that we have in the past, is uh, we're not going to carry that out there this time uh, as far as the chairs and so forth, and so we need you to bring your own chair or plan on standing up for about 25 minutes, all right? Uh, Lord willing, it's going to be glorious uh, to be out there in the morning and praise the Lord to sing a couple of songs and then just to celebrate the beginning of our Easter, and then as the video said, we'll have two services at 9 and 1045 on both campuses next Sunday. I did want to tell you that they're baptized six today over in Alberta, and so we rejoice in that. And last Sunday, our Alberta campus set an attendance record. Uh, They had 147 last Sunday, and so that little church there was filled up. And uh, yesterday was the Sausage Festival. How many of you were brave enough to get out in all that? Raise your hand. All right, there's about 25 of us. Hope you didn't lose your salvation in the middle of all those people. I heard the line, we can't lose our salvation. That was supposed to be funny. Um, The lines were long, I heard, but we had folks out there, of course, uh, just uh, meeting people, inviting people to church. And so that was a wonderful thing. And we're excited about this week and all that God's gonna do uh, in our lives and in our community as we get ready for Easter Sunday. Grab your Bible to the passage Joe read just a few minutes ago. I've chosen Luke's narrative of the triumphal entry uh, for my message today on this Palm Sunday. The message today is entitled, The Mystery of the Messiah. The Mystery of the Messiah. I'm not going to read again Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44, but if you'll keep your Bible open there, I'll make a few references to it along the way as Jesus enters into Jerusalem on this very, very important day. 
When I was a kid, one of my favorite uh, television shows that I watched was The Long Ranger and Tonto. Do I have any kindred spirits in the room? Uh, two guys from completely different backgrounds and walks of life, they come together and they become partners to solve a lot of problems. I remember as a kid getting me a white cowboy hat and one of those black masks uh, because the Long Ranger was one of my heroes. They would go into a commotion or a situation or a problem and they would fix everything, whoop everything, run the bad guys off or whatever, and then always in every situation as they would ride off on their horses, someone would say, who is that masked man? There was always a mystery around who this man who could do so much and fix so many problems, who is he? Well, as we think about the first Palm Sunday, here in our Bible, it is clearly a mystery. It's a mystery about who Jesus really is as he has appeared in so many different situations. He's actually been on a nine-month journey uh, through the Galilee, up in the northern part of Israel, and into Samaria, and then down into Judea. The best I can tell, there are about 35 ministry moments in the life and ministry of Christ here on earth. Now, we know that not everything is recorded that he did and he accomplished, but nonetheless, he would appear into a situation. He would uh, heal the sick. He would raise the dead. He would make the blind to see, and then he would leave, and there was always this mystery around him as to who Jesus really is. Mark records for us in the 10th chapter of his gospel that Jesus is down the hill on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, down in the city of Jericho, and as he walks out of Jericho, he encounters a blind man, and he heals him, and he tells him that his faith has made him whole. What we know now is route one up the uh, mountain into uh, the Mount of Olives and then into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus makes this winding journey and then he arrives at Bethpagi and Bethany. Now in your Bible, you read it as Bethpage, but one of my Jewish friends several years ago very quickly corrected me and laughed at me uh, for saying Bethpage as they enunciated Bethpagi. You see, on this day, this was not a casual stroll by Jesus into Jerusalem to just merely gather some supplies and head on back out. It was not a moment for him to just stop by and visit or say hello to some friends. No, this was the moment for the mission, the mission that God had sent him on. It is no coincidence that he arrives in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And I, I want to be very clear today uh, in saying that, that, that it's important to note Jesus does not arrive in blindness to the events of the moment. Jesus does not arrive with a mystery of wondering, what, what's going to happen to me? What's about to take place? He is also not arriving as a weak and an unwilling victim. No, Jesus is Lord. He's always in authority. He's always in control. This was not a mystery. It was not guesswork. It was all planned out in the sovereign plan of God. Jesus knew 
that he was coming to Jerusalem to fulfill the prophecy of scriptures. As Joe read this a few minutes ago in uh, verses 29 and 30, Jesus tells two unnamed disciples, I want you to go over into the next village and get a colt and bring it to me. Uh, Most scholars agree that he was sending them from Bethany over into Beth Pagi to fetch a donkey. And if someone would say to you, hey, uh, what are you doing? Jesus said, you just tell them that the Lord has need of it. In Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, he notes that there are actually two animals there. There is a mama donkey and then her colt, which makes the story a little bit more dramatic because that colt needs mama, and of course the owner has two animals that are tied to the post. Mark gives us the detail that this colt had never been written. Now, I want you to focus in on that for just a minute. In the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, it says that an unbroken animal is a sacred thing. You see, the people understood that the king's horse or the king's donkey, no one would even sit on it except the king. It was reserved for him. And so there's an understanding that an unbroken animal is a sacred thing. Now, I grew up around horses, and uh, one of the things I learned really quick is that Uh, An unbroken animal can certainly add some drama to the moment. Uh, Imagine jumping jumping on the back of a horse or a a colt that's never uh, been ridden before. But this is a significant detail when it comes to the kingship of our Lord, that he is the king, and this colt is reserved for him. Matthew writes that Jesus specifically tells the disciples, I want you to get a colt. That ties into a prophecy from 500 years before in the book of Zechariah chapter nine and verse number nine, where the writer says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous. And having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, as that verse stays up on the screen, the the daughter of Zion there is referring to Mount Zion, which also includes the city of Jerusalem. I'll say more about that in just a minute. But as Jesus arrives for his triumphal entry, he arrives with a very humble approach. He does not arrive as a typical king or someone that is in royalty with, with trumpets blaring and an orchestrated parade, if you will. Jesus is not on a white horse, a symbol of authority and power. No, he is riding on a colt to symbolize that he was coming in peace. A couple of Old Testament spots I'll just mention briefly. You may remember reading your Bible that when David orders his son Solomon to come into the city to anoint him as king, it says that Solomon rode on David's donkey. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, and when he arrives, he's actually the final son of David. His arrival is not quiet by any means. There's a lot of fanfare. There's a lot of commotion. 
Uh, the people are acting out emotionally, and, and they're actually doing certain things in this moment to, to give him respect and to give him attention. It says that they're taking off their coats and they're laying them on the ground. That was always a symbol of respecting royalty or respecting a king. And certainly they're, they're giving Jesus that recognition. How many of you remember in the Old Testament the most wicked king recorded? At least in my opinion, the most wicked king is King Ahab, right? And when he's removed from his position, the scripture says that God replaces him with a man named Jehu. When Jehu is coming down the steps out of his residence in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse number 13, the people take off their coats and it says that his bare feet touched and he walked on those coats. They were doing that to give him respect and to show him that they recognized his authority. Not only were they throwing their coats on the ground, but John records for us in John 12 and verse 13 that they were waving palm branches. You've seen that several times on the screen today. Why do they use palm branches on, song, on Palm Sunday? To the Jews, those palm branches represented salvation. Salvation. Now, the salvation that they desired is not a spiritual salvation like you and I view it today. We know that salvation is when we are saved from our sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. That, that is not what they're seeking in this moment. They're waving those palm branches because they wanted deliverance from Roman oppression. That was at the front and center of this moment, and they included in their waving of the palm branches, Matthew records in chapter 21 and verse number nine of his account, that they are shouting aloud, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, what does Hosanna actually mean? I'm glad you asked. Hosanna, Hosanna. They were literally saying, please save us now. Save us now. Please deliver us now. Now, the waving of the palm branches would have been more fitting if it would have happened at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now, I don't have time to dig into this today, but I would encourage you to do a little bit of studying on this. At the Feast of the Tabernacles or the Feast of the Booths, they would wave palm branches. And that was a symbol of their deliverance from being in Egyptian bondage for 430 years for them to remember that. So now they're waving these branches, not because of Egypt. They're waving them now because of Roman oppression. Now, for you and I, we look back on the story today, and, and this is what I see. I see in the crowd that the crowd did not understand the mystery of the moment. Sometime when you want to do a word study in the Bible, do a study on this word mystery and see what the Bible has to say about it. Paul wrote about mystery in Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 26. He said, the mystery, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Now see Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, the crowd is living in real time. They are living in the moment of the revelation 
of the mystery of the Messiah. They're living in the moment of the revelation of the redemptive plan of God. What they're looking for, though, is the Messiah or a Messiah. Jewish people today are still looking for a Messiah. The Messiah they're looking for, though, is one that has great political power, someone who maybe has great military strategy, who can deliver them from their oppressors. But you and I look back today with the curtain lifted, and we look back and we say that the mystery of this moment has been revealed, that when Christ rode into Jerusalem, he did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, but he came to establish a heavenly kingdom here on earth. And you and I are the recipients of that today. You just got to pause here for just a minute. And you got to thank the Lord that you're no longer living in the mystery of God's redemptive plan. That it has been revealed. As I've read through this narrative over and over again, sometimes we preachers, we kind of joke with each other a little bit. I see Brother McClellan back here today. He'll know what I'm talking about. We preachers joke about Mother's Day Uh, Mother's Day sermons are coming and Christmas sermons are coming and Easter sermons, you know, and there's only so many ways you can preach the narrative, right? So I read through these narratives about Palm Sunday. I read them over and over again and, and I just prayed, Lord, show me in this text what I need. Show me what you want your people to have on this day, on this Palm Sunday, and I wanna give you what the Lord showed me. The first thing I want you to see in this narrative is that Jesus calls his disciples to obedience. Jesus calls his disciples to obedience. Now, I'm not sure how you're wired, but when I read this story, does anybody in the room feel just a little bit of hesitation, a little bit of friction about what Jesus asked his disciples to do? It's almost as if he told them to go over there in that next town and steal a donkey. And if anybody says, hey, what are you up to as you're prowling around (laughs) looking for what I'm sending you to do? If somebody questions you, you just tell them the Lord told me to do it. (laughs) Anybody tried to use that excuse before in life? I mean, we've used the devil made me do it, right? But how about, well, the Lord told me to come over here uh, and to do this. And and as I read this, I, I, I think about how difficult it is at times to just simply do what the Lord has asked you to do. I mean, just to obey him. And sometimes the Lord might ask us to do difficult things. He might even ask us to do things that to us, humanly speaking, make, makes no sense. At, at times, he asks us to do things that, that really could even put our reputation on the line. Is that not what he did to Mary and Joseph in the Christmas story? Obey me. I want you to go and I want you to untie this colt and bring it to me. Now, in my studies, most scholars believe that there was some kind of prearrangement or something there uh, in this moment where Jesus had prearranged this colt to be where it was. If you don't agree with that, that's okay, but most scholars believe that. Nonetheless, we see that disciples had a choice to make to go and do what the Lord had asked them to do. And so the question I have for us on this Palm Sunday is are we willing to do whatever the Lord asks us to do? 
Now, as you see the crowd following Jesus in this moment, I see that they're following him for what he can do for them. In other words, they wanted to use Jesus, right, to their own benefit, to deliver them from this oppression. And as I read this passage, the Lord spoke to me, am I following Jesus for what he can do for me, or am I following him for what I can do for him? After all, he's already done it all for me. You see, it's not a mystery to me today. I know what happens on Friday, and I know what happens on Sunday. It's not a mystery. It's revealed to me today, and, and, and the Lord has saved me, and he's changed my life, and I understand that, that following him is not following him so he can do things for me. Following him means, Lord, I'm your servant, and I want to live for you, and I want to obey you. Let me ask you something, Christian. Are you willing to truly obey the Lord and do whatever he asks you to do, even if it means going into the next village and untying a donkey? Lord, here I am. Here's my life. God, this doesn't make sense, but you're showing it to me. You are revealing it to me, and I want to be obedient to you. I love what John Calvin said. He said, all right knowledge of God is born out of obedience. All the correct knowledge of God is born out of obedience, even at the moment of your salvation. After all, salvation is a command to do what? Repent and believe. You're not saved today unless you obeyed the command of the Lord. Obedience. And then once you're saved, you begin a life of obedience. Friends, to know Jesus in a personal way, not to have him as just a casual acquaintance or maybe to have him as the mascot of your life, but to know him in a personal and an intimate way is to know we must obey him. There's no parent in the room today who would say, I, I just love a disobedient child. Love it. Love the challenge. No, no one wants a disobedient child. And I would say to you today, our Father, our God, does not want disobedient children either. He wants us to obey him. He wants us to follow him. Make a note of verse 28, would you, real quick? After he said those things, he went on ahead. It's a good phrase there. You know who's leading the way? Who's leading the way, church? Jesus is leading the way. He's completely in control. Palm Sunday is not about chaos and everything being out of control. He goes into Jerusalem and he leads the way. And what he says to us as his disciples is follow me, follow me. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said here about this moment. He said what he would have us to do, oh, may we do it. Word for word, what he would have us to speak Thought for thought, what he would have us to think. Act for act, what he would have us to do. Look at this last sentence. Let us never have a glorious leader and a laggard people. Jesus is our glorious leader. And oh, today on this Palm Sunday, my challenge for you is this. In your life, in your daily walk with the Lord, don't be a laggard. Be obedient Jesus calls us to obedience. 
The second thing I see in the text is that Jesus causes us to rejoice. Jesus causes us to rejoice. Now watch this. We're on this side of Palm Sunday. The mystery, the mystery is gone. We're not in the dark about all of the details. The mystery has been revealed. You and I can see clearly. We understand from the scriptures all the details of everything that takes place this week on Passion Week. And I suggest to you today, since we know the details and since the curtain has been lifted, then we have no choice but to rejoice. Y'all calm down, calm down. I said we have no reason but to rejoice. This day, this crowd, they are rejoicing over what might happen. They're rejoicing over what they hope will happen. They're crying out, save us now, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, we are gathered here today as the body of Christ, as Christ's followers, as believers. And we are rejoicing today not over what might happen, but over what has happened. We're rejoicing today over what is happening. And we're rejoicing today over what is going to happen. Jesus is coming again. One writer said, nothing has done Christianity more harm through the centuries than sad faces and black clothes. And I've got on a black suit today. By the way, y'all don't get used to this, all right? Nothing has done Christianity more harm than people who profess to be Christ followers who looks sad and discouraged and defeated all the time. No, the gospel brings joy in our hearts. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter four and verse number four, rejoice in the Lord always. Can you see the picture of the crowd this day? They're so excited. They're so filled with joy. They're throwing their coats down and they're waving the branches for all the wrong reasons. Today we sing and we rejoice and we praise our king for all the right reasons because he came willingly. Today is a day of rejoicing. So just go ahead right now, right now, go ahead and just smile just a little bit, all right? This is Palm Sunday. Jesus causes us to rejoice. He calls us to obedience. He calls, uh, causes us to rejoice but the third thing I see is that Jesus deserves our praise. He deserves our praise. In verse number 37, it says his disciples begin to rejoice, and then they begin to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice this last phrase in verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Don't miss that phrase because scholars say it very clearly connects back to Luke chapter two at the birth announcement. At the time, the angels declared glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Now, the addition here in verse number 38 of this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it ties back to Psalm 
118 and verse 26. This is really good. Get this. So as the people would come into the temple for their time of sacrifice and worship, they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would say that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that that pronouncement of a blessing was actually upon themselves. I'm blessed because I'm coming to the temple now in the name of the Lord. Read Psalm 118 uh, this afternoon for a homework assignment. It was, it, was a, it was language, it was verbiage that was very closely atta- attached to the Jewish pilgrimages as they came into Jerusalem. And so the statement is not, attached to the Messiah, but to this blessing. But here, the statement is attached to the Messiah. It's attached to Jesus. And as he comes, that last phrase in verse number 38 reminds us that Jesus' enthronement, his kingship will not happen in Jerusalem, but in heaven and glory in the highest. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And because of that, he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. How many of you believe that somebody like that (laughs) deserves praise and glory and honor? Now listen to me. Some of you maybe, you're a little uncomfortable with that here on this earth. You're, you're a little uncomfortable. I, you know, sometimes at church you're sitting there and you're singing or you think, man, you know, I, I want to praise the Lord. And so you, you might struggle just a little bit to raise your hand. Some of you maybe get a little nervous about clapping and so forth. And you're like, man, I don't know if I should clap. or should. Would you hear me for just a minute? You might as well go ahead and let go. You might as well, you might as well just go ahead because I want to tell you something. When we get around the throne of God, we're going to be singing praises for all eternity to the Lamb of God. And we're going to be singing in perfect. Some of you can't sing a lick. When we get there, though, it's going to be perfect harmony. We're going to pray. Would it make any sense to you, just, just, just being common, kind of common sense here, all right? Would it make any sense to you to not praise him here, but say, I'll just do it when I get there? Does that make any sense to you? doesn't to me. The disciples are rejoicing, and they're praising God. And they're saying, blessed is he, not me, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How many of you know that when you decide to give him praise and glory and honor, there's some that are not going to like it? Verse number 39, the Pharisees chime in. They're tired of the ruckus. They're tired of the noise. Everybody's too loud. There's too much of a celebration going on here. Jesus Would you rebuke them? Would you tell them to be quiet? And Jesus looks at the Pharisees, (laughs) and he says, if they were not praising me, then the rocks would cry out. Then the the rocks would cry out. I've just made my mind up, and whatever time I got left, I'm not going to let the rocks outdo me in the praise category. I don't want to get to heaven and find out I didn't praise him enough. I'd rather you try to calm me down a little bit than to not give my Lord and my Savior all the praise that he deserves. 
That's what Palm Sunday is all about. We wave our palm branches today, not saying, Lord, save us, but we wave our palm branches today saying, Lord, thank you for saving me. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor. Jesus deserves our praise. That's why Fanny Crosby, who was blind her whole life, until she died and her eyes opened up in glory, she never saw the sun, she never saw a face, she never saw a smile. But one day she sat down and she began to write and she wrote, praise him, praise him. Jesus, our blessed redeemer, sing, O earth, his wonderful love, Proclaim, hail him, hail him, highest archangels in glory, strength and glory give to his holy name. Like a shepherd, Jesus will guard his children. In his arms, he carries them all day long. And then the third verse of that song she wrote, praise him, praise him, Jesus our blessed redeemer. Heavenly portals now with hosannas ring. Jesus, Savior, reigneth forever and ever. Crown him. Crown him. Prophet and priest and king. Christ is coming over the world victorious. Power and glory unto the Lord belong. Praise him, praise him. Tell of his excellent greatness. Praise him, praise him ever in joyful song. Praise him. I was listening to someone the other day preaching. They made a point I'd never heard before. I thought it was pretty good. That we talk about the advent, we talk about the coming of the Lord at the time of his birth, and then we're looking for the second advent, the coming of our Lord, that Jesus is coming again. But this particular pastor that I was listening to said, really, there's three advents. As a matter of fact, he preached a message on Christmas Eve Sunday morning on the narrative of the triumphal entry. And he said that this moment is actually an advent, that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. And this is the moment. This is the moment for the redemptive plan of God. When you think about the big picture, you think about the tent and the tabernacle and the temple. We know the temple was destroyed in 586. It was built again in 515, and then it stayed until 70, and then the temple was wiped out again, and it's never been rebuilt. And so the Jewish people just long for the day when they'll be able to sacrifice and when the temple will be built again. But think about the prophecy of Ezekiel in 586 B.C. When Ezekiel has a vision of Jerusalem, what does he see? He sees in chapter 10, verses 22 to 24, that the glory of the Lord departs from the temple. It reminds me of 1 Samuel chapter 4 when Eli's son Phinehas and his wife has a child. The child is born and he is named Ichabod. The glory has departed. Ezekiel said in his vision, when the glory lifts up from the temple, it moves across the Kidron Valley and guess where it rests? He says, it rests on the mountain on the east side. What mountain is that? It's the Mount of Olives. 
If you've been there before, you know how small of an area we're talking about here, okay? You come off the Temple Mount and down through the Kidron Valley, and there's the Mount of Olives right up to the top where Bethany and Bethpagi is. The glory departed from the temple. But on this particular day, Jesus, who is glory, leaves the Mount of Olives. Put that picture up there if you would on the screen. He leads the Mount of Olives and he comes down through the Kindred Valley. If you've been to Israel, you know what this scene is. This is looking back toward the eastern gate of the city. There's a palm branch, of course. And so you're actually over here on the Mount Olive side. I, the first time I went to Israel, I stayed in the King David Hotel, which was up on Mount Zion. And I could go out on the balcony and I could look down and over to my right, I could see the city and I could see the Golden Dome on the Temple Mount. I could see down toward the Kindred Valley and then I could see over to my left, the Mount of Olives. Man, there's so many things in the Bible that you can replay in your mind in that moment, you know? So many pictures. Palm Sunday's one of them. I've walked down the hill. Missy and I now, I've walked down the hill four times down that route off the Mount of Olives, the Palm Sunday walk. As you replay these stories in your mind, I see Jesus coming down, and he goes up into, and he enters through the Golden Gate. Sometimes we call it the Eastern Gate. Some of you old-timers in church used to sing a lot about the Eastern Gate. Y'all remember that? I'll meet you in the morning over by the Eastern Gate. That's the Golden Gate. But Jesus goes in, and he says when he comes in on that donkey, he goes in. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. And he looks around, and then he heads back out to the Mount of Olives for the night. And we all know from reading our Bible what happens tomorrow, and it's not pretty. He goes in, and he flips over the money tables, right? Now, why did he do that? Someone said to me years ago, well, he did it because somebody was selling something at the church. Oh, come on, time out now. He did it because there was a lot of poverty in this time. And when the poor would make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they didn't have the money for sacrifice many times. Sometimes they would make that money on the way. And they needed help making the sacrifice. And so there at the temple, there would be the animals and the doves and the things that they needed that they could get at a, at a rock-bottom price in order to fulfill their commitment to God. But what happened is there were some leaders in the temple that began to make merchandise of the people, and they were overselling the sacrifices. Jesus knew that. And so the next day he goes in, and he flips over the money tables, and he drives them all out. Why? Because they had perverted the plan of God. And when man perverts the plan of God, God always judges sin. Give me your best ears for just a minute here. God always judges sin. We see in verse 41 to 44 that Jesus goes outside the city, and what does he do? Verse 41, look in your Bible. What does he do? He's crying. He's weeping. He's heartbroken. And he says, as I ponder you, and I ponder what's about to happen, this would, of course, be in the 30s, closer to 40. In 70, it's coming. 
Jesus said they're gonna barricade you in, they're gonna surround you, they're gonna take you and your children, and then he makes this statement at the end of verse number 44. Because you did not know the time or the mystery of the visitation. Here's what I want you to see real quick. The one who goes into the temple on Monday, John chapter one says that Jesus came and he dwelt among us. That word there means that he tabernacled. Jesus came and dwelt among us. Jesus goes in because he knows that he is about to be the sacrifice. And once and for all, he's going to give his life for the covering, for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. And Jesus goes in and he drives them out. You know why? Because Jesus on his heart was the reconciliation of man to God. And he drove out anything that would be a hindrance to that. You know why? Because when you have not been reconciled to God in the future, there's one big thing on your calendar, and that is judgment and condemnation. Now, you and I today, we look back and we see the story. And we know that Friday's coming. Good Friday night, we'll meet in here and remember the cross of our Lord and take communion together. We know that Friday's coming. We know that Sunday's coming. Why does all of this happen? It happens so that we would know Jesus lives in us, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. It's the only way. It's the only way to truly be in the presence of God. And here's what else we know. There's more to the story. When I look at this picture, put that picture back up, please. When I look at this picture and I think about the Eastern Gate and I think about the Golden Gate, did you know right there at the base of that gate, all along that hill, there's graves everywhere. And the reason those graves are there is because the Muslims, in their mind, think a Jew will not walk through a cemetery. So this narrative of Jesus of Nazareth, when he supposedly comes, he won't walk through that gate because there's a cemetery there. How many of you know that's not gonna work real well? When Jesus comes back, it says that once again, he's gonna land and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. And once again, he's gonna walk through the Golden Gate, through the Eastern Gate, right into the city of Jerusalem. I prayed so many times while I was in Israel, it happened while I was standing there so I could have a front row seat. Nonetheless, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem again. And when he comes, he's come, coming to gather up his bride, the church. And for all eternity, we're gonna be with him in a place called heaven. My question for you today is, are you ready? Are you ready for that moment? Can you truly say in your heart, there's no mystery. There's no mystery for me about the Messiah because I know the Messiah. He's my Savior and my Lord. And I've got my eyes, I've got my eyes toward the eastern sky. And I'm looking for Jesus to come again. And I would close my Palm Sunday sermon today by just simply saying, even so, come, come, Lord Jesus.
Let's pray together.